Welcome to The Wondering Mind, a mental health podcast. I'm your host, Emily Elizabeth. My goal with this show is to help educate, encourage, and support those that are struggling with their mental health by sharing my own stories, as well as the stories of others, to show you that you are not alone and you can do anything if you work hard and put your wondering mind to it. So let's get started. In today's episode, I chat with Randy Woodford. Randy is an activist, marketing professional, and founder of the mental health brand Mindful. Today, Randy gets extremely candid about his struggles with ADHD and depression, and he also shares what life is like being Black in corporate America. So if you'd like to learn more about Randy's journey, then keep on listening. Hey there. Thank you so much for tuning into The Wondering Mind, a mental health podcast. Just a quick disclaimer before we get started. This show is in no way meant to treat or diagnose any type of mental illness. I am not a mental health professional, simply just someone who has struggled and felt called to share what I've learned and am learning along my mental health journey. Thank you so much for your support. Now let's get into the episode. Welcome to the Wondering Mind podcast. I'm your host, Emily Elizabeth. Today, I have a very special guest. I have Randy Woodford with me, and we're going to talk about a lot of stuff today. Um, There's a lot to unpack, so I'm really excited to learn more about your story and let everyone hear all about what you've been through. So welcome. Thank you for joining me. Thank you for having me. I'm really excited to talk today, and uh, hopefully that there's some things that are said that help someone else. I mean, that's the, ultimately the reason why I was excited about the opportunity. So thank you for having me. I think it's great that you're bringing awareness to mental health. It's something that's really extremely important to me and a lot of people, especially during these times in 2020 and 21 and going forward. So thank you. Yeah, absolutely. I appreciate that. And I I feel like 2021 is honestly just part two of 2020. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Which uh, I don't know how to feel about that, but yeah. So yeah, let's just uh, dive into it. So you and I had a previous chat where we had like our pre-interview chat and you actually ended up telling me quite a bit about what you've been through. And I was shocked, honestly, because it's funny, you look at someone and you see them online and you just never think that I don't know, that they've gone through some of the stuff that you've been through or, you know, that they've dealt with certain things because a lot of, again, a lot of people just don't open up or talk about certain things. And yeah, I was really shocked and I could relate to a lot. So I guess I'll start with my first question because I feel like this question will start to unpack everything else. So it's, why did you decide to start the brand Mindful? Sure. So I'm glad you asked that. I'm wearing a mindful hat. So the reason that I started the brand mindful is because I think like a lot of people each and every day, no matter what we're doing in our lives, the jobs we have, the families that we have, that dynamic, what we do in our personal lives, we have a lot on our minds. For me, working in corporate America, I've always felt like I had a minimal mental capacity. 
but maximum creative thought. So that really is like the definition, short definition of mindful, minimal mental capacity, maximum creative thought. Because when you're in a role in corporate America, you have a specific role that you're paid to do. So in my previous role, really it inspired me to create mindfuls because I had a lot of ideas and visions for the company that were big ideas that, you know, involved influencers from different backgrounds and reaching consumers that we typically wouldn't target. But being that I was in a role that required me to work on product innovation and new SKUs and things that we would launch, I didn't really have the opportunity to leverage my creativity. So I felt like I was trapped. So my mind was just full and I couldn't get it out in the role. So ultimately that led to me choosing to leave my last company. And also that led to me starting Mindful. That was one of the first things that we kind of talked about before. And I related entirely because that's how I feel in my current role. And I've kind of always felt that in every corporate role that I've ever had, because the roles I've been in, like you said, they've just never allowed for a certain level of creativity. It was more of a robotic role in a sense of clock in, sit down, do your job, leave. There was no, you know, personal input per se. And I know there are jobs out there like that, but for me personally, I've never experienced that. So I think it's just amazing and inspiring that you were like, you know what, if I'm not getting it from this job that I clearly like I need to support myself at this point, I'm just going to start my own brand. And luckily you were able to shift careers. So that's good. But yeah. Another question that I have, because we're talking about like how mental health kind of fares in a corporate setting or just in a type of role that doesn't necessarily fit our personality per se. What is your personal connection to mental health? Yeah. So for me personally, and I'm gonna get real transparent right now, because I think that that's always helpful for people who, you know, may have battled things secretly and quietly behind doors and, and not, not talked about it. And there's nothing wrong with that either. Like you don't have to talk about it, you know, but I, someone who I feel like I've always been gifted with words and talking to people and, you know, sharing my story. So like, I always want to give my full self to anyone I talk to so that maybe there's something that I say that helps them. You know, maybe I saved someone's life. Maybe someone doesn't want to live anymore and they, they're con- contemplating suicide. And maybe the conversation that we have changes that and gives them some perspective on something that I've dealt with myself. And so back in, I think it was 20, yeah, 2018, I was in a new role. You know, I was doing well in my career, like super successful at 28 years old. I was, you know, making over a six figure salary and things seemed great. Financially, they were great, but mentally I was still, you know, in that corporate America, just feeling like as a young African-American male, I was an anomaly for one and for two, just feeling like I didn't really fit in as my natural self. And in order to connect with the people that I work with, I had to alter the way I talked, the way I acted, the things that I commented on and the way I would, you know, respond. So although everybody on the outside, you know, family and friends and people in, in Louisville who I knew, you know, someone who's succeeding and doing well and things were great and I had no worries in the world. In my mind, I was just like, I felt so trapped, just similar to what I felt in my last role that I just left. And nothing to do with the people there at the jobs, you know, good people, kind, caring, welcoming environments within those organizations, nothing but love and respect for them both. 
but just this feeling of wanting more, you know, wanting to feel fulfillment from the roles that I was in and being in that situation, having also ADHD and my focus being very limited, even sitting here right now and sitting down at any time for me is tough. Like I'm a person who I walk around, I pace when I'm talking on the phone. I've got a little uh, punching bag here in my living room. I'll box during calls sometimes. I'll just walk in circles for hours sometimes and just thinking of ideas and just creative things. So being in these corporate roles felt like torture a lot of times. And during one of the lowest points in my life, you know, I was having some other issues with the relationship on top of my, my job and then, you know, family and just like connectivity with, with family and things not feeling the same and uh, a lot of things at once. So I had so much going on in my mind that it wasn't that I wanted to die or I didn't want to live. It was more that I just wanted to stop all the thoughts. I wanted to stop all of the anxiety. I wanted to stop all the feelings of emotions that were going on in my head. So I decided one night that I was going to, you know, take as many pills as I could find in my uh, medicine cabinet and drink alcohol with them to take them down. And, and I was just, whatever happened, happened. Uh, but thankfully I'm here, it, you know, it, it was a failed attempt, but that changed my life. You know, like coming from that experience, seeing how people, so how hurt people were, you know, my family and, and some of my friends and, you know, people I work with and like literally seeing people cry, talking to me about what I did and like, you know, not guilting me, but just like show, telling me how much they love me and cared about me and how much they, you know, hear from me. And if I ever feel like that, just come to them. And, you know, and it gave me a new perspective and, and one, I wanted to live for them. You know what I mean? Even more than my own self. It was like, I want to live for the people that care about me and love me. So during that journey and after that journey, I went back to work and I still was struggling. So I ended up leaving the company, but to answer your question about the, the mental health aspect and me personally, that experience changed my life because I never realized how much my mental health was in jeopardy until it got to that point of, I didn't even know if how to stop it. So I thought that maybe I'll just take a bunch of pills and go to sleep and never wake up. And that'll be the end of my problems. But then finding new life with going after something that I wanted to do for myself, as far as a business venture and starting my own company uh, to help people who, you know, aren't always gifted with those opportunities. So the depression, uh, the feeling of, you know, I, I saw you talk about imposter syndrome, like that was something that was really big um, in my mind, you know, something I had researched and I was like, yeah, this is, I feel like this, you know, this, I relate to this. And, and I knew, I knew that the story of the things that I had been through could possibly help someone else. So like, from that day forward, I've always tried to continue to tell that story, whether it's internally at work to my coworkers, I'm very transparent about what I've been through, why I'm like I am and things I care about and I'm passionate about. And anybody who would talk to me or talk to you would say the same exact thing. So that's, that's how mental health has affected me in just the last, I'd say five years in my life. And, you know, I'm learning to deal with it. And one of the ways is putting my energy into things like mindful. Yeah, I can relate to a lot of things that you just shared. One in particular being struggling at work 
with attention span and also not to the degree that you are feeling probably, but just not feeling like I fit in, like I had a specific place. And I think from my perspective, that had more to do with something that I'm still not comfortable sharing within the workplace is like what I'm going through being transparent because I've always had leaders that they don't cross that line of it's always like professionalism. There's no, you know, how are you? How can I help you? What are you struggling with? Let me help you succeed or there's nothing personal about their relationships or the rapport that I've had in corporate America thus far. And so I admire the fact that you had the courage to share that with some of your coworkers and even your friends and family. I mean, that's another thing that I think a lot of people really struggle with whenever they go through really difficult times in their life is the, they don't feel comfortable necessarily sharing and they keep to themselves and they suffer in silence. And some people aren't as lucky in when they attempt to end their life, they succeed. And it's really unfortunate because like you said, in the beginning of our conversation, just having a conversation with someone can really change the whole situation around and potentially save a life, gives new perspective, breathes new perspective into the situation. And it's comforting. And yeah, I just, I, I, I want to ask you, how did you navigate those conversations in the workplace? I mean, for me, talking about things that are Trent, like personal to me in the workplace, is, is, it's gotten easier because I've done it so much. Every job I've ever been at, I've at least had one conversation that was like a, a deep conversation. And every job I ever left, I always write an email to the people that I was close to that I work with. Uh, my managers and, and anyone who worked in my same position. And I always leave an email that kind of maps out some of the things that I was feeling, but also just to try to give some perspective as to like how to keep going and like thanking them for the opportunity. And just like some of the, you know, just really just summarizing my time there in a short email, just as a thank you and a farewell. But so that was how it started. And then, you know, as time has passed, I've gotten more, transparent at work just because like we're, we're all human beings you know at the end of the day um I want to talk I talk to people like people you know and I'm like we come to work and we want to have this like this look and feel so that people take us seriously and I'm like what's more serious than being who you actually are like you can't be any more serious than that and I can't talk to someone any more real than telling them exactly what's going on in my mind or what's going on in my life. And like, for me, I started my last job at Valvoline in the middle of a pandemic last summer, but also in the middle of social unrest in Louisville and protesting all over the world for, you know, Breonna Taylor. Definitely want to say her name, you know, almost a year now from that situation. So, you know, for me, it was a lot going on at once. And I felt like it was almost my duty and my obligation as someone who had protested on the streets in Louisville and in Frankfurt and, you know, and been a part of the movement to continue that movement, even in corporate America, because I was in front of a lot of people who 
didn't really have to face what was happening in Louisville, the protesting. They could just stay in their, you know, their neighborhoods and in their safe havens. And they see it on the news and just, you know, go on about their business, but it didn't really affect them. So like, I almost felt like it was my duty to protest internally within my organization. Like I would wear this shirt on calls at work. This is a 502 shirt and the back of it is says, say their names, it's Ahmaud Aubrey, Breonna Taylor, George Floyd. I would wear these, this shirt and other shirts like this on calls purposely and hats and things like that. Wear my hats backwards on calls when I'm with a group of people, just because I wanted them to see me as me. And I think that when it comes down to having those conversations, they always saw me as that. They knew that I was going to stand up for what was right. I have Muhammad Ali on my background. And sometimes I would purposely like close a presentation. So they see my background, come back in really quick and say, sorry about that. Because like there's certain things that I felt like I wanted them to know me. So whenever they talk to me, you know, they, they knew what they were going to get. And um, I may be the only time they interact with a black person. For example, I worked with a lot of people that were not black. I was one of the only black people working in my entire department. I never really saw black people on any calls. And sometimes there would be a hundred people on a call and maybe there's one or two black people on that call. So whenever I did get an opportunity to speak in front of the group uh, or on calls at work, I'm like, they're gonna get the full me because they may have an idea of what black people are like or they may have an idea that of what Breonna Taylor was like or what George Floyd is like. But, you know, when they see me, they're going to know that, you know, we're just human beings, just like you. Like we do this, we can do the same. I can do the same job as you can do. I can get on the same call as you can get on. I can talk about the same things that you talk about. And we say this thing about we're all created equally, which we are, but there's so many times where, we look down upon, you know, just like not just black people, but also women in the organizations, because that's something that bothers me too. working for corporate America and seeing like the lack of representation of women on those those higher level executive level levels within these companies, because like my boss at Valvoline, one of the most talented, gifted people I've ever met in my entire life, like organized, multitasking, like just a boss, creative. Same for Brown Foreman, my boss at Brown Foreman, like just she could she could do accounting, she could do marketing, she could do sales, she could do whatever you needed to do, you know. But a lot of times women don't get the, the opportunities to do the things that men do. And then you get on Zoom calls and you hear men talk, talking over women and, you know, women have to like even do more to be heard. And it's like I can relate to that, too, as a, as a black man, you know, and feeling like my voice is not heard. So the reason I'm so transparent at work to answer your question in a long, long answer uh, is because, you know, I, I, I want to make sure that my voice is heard and that when people see me, they see a representation of all, you know, why the, the people who march, like I, I look like I look like I march, like I do that, but also I look like those, the people who have who've lost their lives for just being black, you know, in America. So, it could be me, you know, and I just want to bring that reality to work because it's a reality, unfortunately, that we have to face every single day and we don't get a choice. If I didn't like speak out about stuff at work and I didn't talk about it, like I would drive, I would go crazy. Like literally the only way, like one of the only ways that I, I was able to even stay in my role that I was in for as long as I, it wasn't that long, to be honest, it wasn't even a year, but 
the only way I was able to stay in that role for a year was to be that way because it starts to affect you mentally. It starts to affect the way you feel about yourself. Like my confidence and things like that. When I was talking about things in the job where it was a lot lower, like I wasn't really confident talking about the job as a new person. But when I got an opportunity to talk about like, you know, things happening in the world that are affecting me or people like me, you know, if someone asked a question, I was so glad to speak on it because I'm like, oh yeah, we can talk about this for as long as you want, you know, because <laughs> to me, this is important. So I speak with it. I speak about it with passion and you can, you can feel the sincerity because it is real. Like it's my, it's our reality. And a really interesting thing about me was I always talked about my brother at work because my brother is actually an LM, LMPD uh, officer. So he's a police officer in Louisville. And, um, you know, for a lot of people, that was always in a conversation that they wanted to have. Like there was a guy I would talk to at work and every time I talked to him, he'd be like, how's your brother? How's your brother, man? How's your brother, the police officer in Louisville with all the protests? How's your brother doing? That was the, all he asked. He always, he always cared, which is fine. You know, I appreciate you asking and being concerned about someone that I love, my brother, my family. But, you know, it was not a lot of conversations about how was I or how were, you know, how are people in Louisville? You know, like, so that was just something that I noticed that a lot of people, they don't think that the protesters or the people that are affected by seeing police brutality happen over and over and the people dying, you know, they're not as concerned with their well-being or their, their mental health. It's about like, how are the police who are policing them, you know, now, how everybody's so mad at the police now, like what about, and, and you know, even that was something that was meant, you know, at work in my role because people would ask me about my brother and they meant good. They didn't mean any harm, but still it's just like, he's good. You know, I mean, it's a tough job, but he signed up for it, you know, but we didn't, I didn't sign up to be, be black. You know, I just, I was born this way and it is what it is. So I'm, I got to either live with it or he can, he can quit his job. My brother could quit his job. Any police officers can turn in their badges and be done with that you know, and just be regular civilians. I can't just turn in my skin and say, all right, I'm done being black today. I want to be white now, or I want to, you know, I want to be something else. And then, you know, it just, it just what it is, you know? So that was something that really affected me during that time. Sounds as though, again, that, that whole experience and that whole situation of being in corporate America and being surrounded by so many white people and people who you can't relate to on a deeper level or something like that can connect you on a, in a different way can really over time and or immediately take an effect on your mental health. And I can't imagine how isolating that would feel and how lonely that would get. And I it makes just so much sense that you would go the extra mile, even if it's somewhat of a burden on you to make your voice heard and known because being an environment kind of toxic, uh, I mean, in a way like that, I mean, it, you recognize that it was important for your sanity in a sense. Yeah, for sure. Like I said, if I didn't, if I didn't say stuff or speak out or let some things out, because you spend so much time during your day at work, you know, I misquote this a lot, but it's something that Muhammad Ali said about 24 hours in a day. 
and how we spend eight hours sleeping, eight hours working, and then we get eight hours to ourselves, some of us. But it's mostly less than that for most people because that eight hours that you get working, it's really 10 hours because even if you're on your commute to work or the time where you're working a little bit extra after the time and you're thinking about work or any time you're thinking about work, which is sometimes for some people, 24 hours. So your time is consumed with work and sleep. And what he was talking about was if you could turn that around to where you slept for eight hours and you lived for 16. So like your work and your living time became one. Hmm. So enjoying what you do. Um, so like when it comes to my own work and sanity is like, I wanted to merge my personal life and how I felt with the work that I did and the people that I work with. So I always brought that part of me to work as well. And it did help, you know, to be able to get through the days when I didn't feel like I could get through the days. I would just, you know, tell someone like, you know, honestly, it's, how are you? They asked the question, how are you? How's it, how's everything going? They wouldn't expect the answers they would get back because I'd be like, well, you know, <laughs> honestly, <laughs> now that you ask, I'm doing all right. But it's just, it's been a tough week. You know, there's a lot going on with this and that. And, you know, I'm just overwhelmed. You know, mentally, I'm kind of drained right now. I really just, you know, I need a break. Uh, and I got a lot to do, but, you know, I'm just not really feeling it. And, and I just... And those were the conversations. And I think it was good because people respected I was so open with them. And I think it helped some other some of the people that I work with to also see a different perspective, you know. And they may have also related or felt that way, but they may have not expressed it. But just me, you know, bringing that to them, sometimes I felt like it, it almost made us connected on like a human being level versus a coworker, like we're just coworkers, you know? So yeah, that's, I had to, I had to talk about it to, to deal with it. Which makes sense because talking about how you're feeling is always very healing for most people. And it's why therapy is so important. That's why finding people to confide in is so important and having tough conversations and just choosing to be vulnerable, even when you really don't want to is yeah. beneficial and it's not always easy, but I have a question bringing it back to ADHD because I'm very interested in this. I haven't had anyone on the show yet to talk about this yet. When were you diagnosed with ADHD? For me, when I was young, in middle school, I was the class clown. So it's in, it's in my yearbook, Johnson Middle School. Too. And then at, at Mel High School, I was flirtatious in the yearbook. So I was a social, basically all that means is I was a social butterfly, I knew everybody. And like, I was always joking and like the life of the class, like this just having a good time. Like I wanted to make things fun. So that surface level is what, that's what it looks like. But I was also one of those students who I never stayed in my seat. I was always talking to other students. I was always distracted and distracting others, which is more of a problem. But a lot of times in, you know, the black community, especially like things like ADHD and taking medicine to be able to pay attention and focus are like, you don't need that. You need to just sit your ass down, you need to pay attention, you need to listen. All right. <laughs> and if you don't, you're going to be on punishment. You're not doing this. You're not doing that. You know, so that's like 
that's how it was, you know? So I didn't really take it as anything serious until, you know, I got to college and I saw people taking prescription Adderall to be able to study and to focus. And I'm like, eh, I don't know. And then as time passed and I went to jobs and, you know, cause in college you can get by without being focused all the time. You can miss classes, you know, it's tests. And you, if you're passing the test and you're turning in your assignments and going to class and the class that you have to be in, you're okay. But in a job, you have to be on all the time. Like you're paid to be there every day. So this was the first time in my life where I was like, I really have to be focused like all the time, like almost eight hours a day focused um, and engaged or I'll miss something important. So it was almost impossible for me to do, you know, especially when I was in the office at the desk. This is when I was working at Brown Foreman and people would walk by where I sat. And every time someone walks by, I'm looking at them, <laughs> having a conversation, like, and I've got stuff to do. And I'm on a call and I'm typing and I'm, and it just wasn't really good. And I was like, I don't know how people can sit at a desk all day and focus. Like I can't, you know, it's just, it's not working. So after like my, the suicide attempt and, you know, those things I started to, I went to my doctor and he recommended that I go and see someone. And I was telling him that one of the things that was stressing me out was that I can't focus and I feel like I'm never getting anything done. Like I can't, you know, I can't engage and I'm just struggling, I'm just struggling at work. And that's making me frustrated and it's making me feel like I'm, I'm not, I'm not good enough. Like I can't do the job. I'm not, I shouldn't have this role. So then when I was tested, the doctor, like immediately when we were doing the testing was kind of like, like you're, you're on the, you're on the severe like edge, like of, of ADHDs. Like I can tell by like, you don't like the whole time you've been here, you've been moving, you, you talk with your hands, you're moving your legs, you're moving your feet, like you're moving your head. He's like, there's just little, those, those types of cues, like visual things. But then when he asked me certain questions about how I work and my, my habits, you know, how I am just when I'm at home alone, like, what am I doing? Like, it was just a lot of questions and discovery questions. And at the end of it, it was like, you've probably had this your entire life and never known. He's like, and you should have been treated because who knows what you could have done if you had, you know, the focus that you needed. Cause I always passed all my classes. I got my college degree, you know, I was, you know, always a pretty smart person is just, I would learn something really like quickly. And once I caught on, I would get bored with it. And I'm like, all right, I'm on to the next thing. So I'm distracting other students from learning, which I already learned. So I could always pass my test and I could help my friends. Even my friends would used to call me for help on work and homework and tests and different things. Cause I was the smart, like a smart person. I was a pretty smart person, but I didn't even have my full attention. Like I had a, a very small percentage probably. So that's when I first realized it was an actual real thing. And that was, I was 28 years old working in a corporate job at a place that I had dreamed about working, but I was just really struggling. So yeah, when I found out I was prescribed medication, tried the medications, Adderall was one along with some others that Adderall wasn't really good. So we tried some other things and through all the medications, I always felt the side effects, like I would feel nauseous or I would, um, you know, just have like really dry mouth, just different things that bothered me or my creativity would feel like it was stifled. So ultimately I was like, I don't want to take these drugs. 
Like I've lived with it for 28 years. These drugs can kind of help with some things, but they take away from others. So I was like, you know, the side effects aren't really worth it for me. So for me personally, and I'm not saying that for everybody, this is the same, but just for me personally, I didn't really, I didn't, I wasn't a fan of taking the medicine when I was diagnosed with ADHD. I was briefly put on Adderall. Wasn't pleasant. <laughs> was a horrible experience. That medication is not for everybody. It's like a teeter-totter. So it may be beneficial in the sense that it kind of balances things out and you were able to focus more, but it stifles your creativity or it seeps into other aspects of your life in a negative way. And um, I've constantly experienced that throughout my entire life because I've been on and off antidepressants throughout my entire adult and teenage life. And up until this year, it got to the point where I had gotten to a really low point, I think just with everything going on last year and just isolation and all that just piled into one. It just kind of snowballed and I tried to go back on medication again and it had been a really long time, like three or four years. And at first I was like starting to feel some kind of a sense of relief, if you will. And then it plummeted and I was suicidal and I was like, well, <laughs> nope, not gonna go down that route. So it's just not for everyone. I mean, if it works for you, that's great, but you just have to be careful when contemplating whether you would like to integrate medication back into your life or into your life for the first time, because I feel like people try to glamorize it in a sense. And also it's just so blase at this point, like doctors will just write prescription, like it ain't no fucking thing. And like, you can't always trust that you have to be weary of anything that you put in your body and at this point I think with mental health awareness spreading rapidly and with more people talking about it and speaking up about their experiences and therapies becoming more normalized and all over every community I think we are beginning to understand that there's other outlets other ways to navigate our mental health experiences. And so that brings me to another question. You kind of brought that up a little bit before, but how have you been able to utilize different outlets to cope? I think for me, the biggest thing coping with mental health is finding things that you really are passionate about, things that you get up in the morning and you want to do. Because for me, when I'm feeling low, Sometimes it makes me feel better to support other people and just to show love. And like, when, I, when I'm giving out a lot of love and, and, and a lot of times those are sometimes when I'm feeling myself the worst, but it makes me feel good to like repost or share something and say something kind about somebody else. or look at the work that they're doing or listen to the music they're making and say like, wow, man, that's dope. You know what I mean? Like, I'm not feeling that great right now, but I'm glad to know that there are so many talented, gifted people out here that are using their gifts and talents, you know, so that motivates me to then continue to pursue my, my passions and things that I care about the most. And so also exercising. I talked about a boxing, my punching bag that I have right here in my living room. So for me, something that helps me to cope is always to stay as active as possible. When I'm not as active, I don't feel as good, you know, so taking a shower. I love to take a 
long shower with music on. That makes me feel better. Sometimes when I'm not feeling good, I just get in the shower, turn on the music, blast it, sing in the shower, whatever. Just, just enjoy the moment, you know, cooking. So cooking is something that I also enjoy to do, you know, just a lot of times it's like steak or something like that. I'll like treat myself not feeling as good. I might grab a steak from the store. I'm going to marinate it and cook it with some Brussels sprouts and mashed potatoes and just like, you know, just to do something to stop myself from just sitting on the couch and just being miserable, you know? So at this point, you know, I've almost learned like how to, to see, foresee myself plummeting or when I'm feeling low, I'm, I'm on my way and I know how to get myself out of it. And then the other thing is just talking. So like I've got people that I talk to on a regular basis, friends, family, Sometimes we just have a, a hour or two conversation. I might talk to one of my best friends and just talk to him on the phone for like an hour or two about random things. But just having those conversations a lot of times take my takes my mind off of all the troubles and things that I'm dealing with, and just also helps me to understand that you know some I guess people that care about me. You know, I got somebody I can pick up the phone and call. You know, when I'm not feeling good, and I don't have to go through these situations alone. I really appreciate the fact that you just gave all the examples of just everyday simple things that you can do and I couldn't agree more and it sounds so silly because people are always looking for such a like a bold or like a you know a fancy response like you know do this or do that do yoga do whatever it may be and that's fine whatever works for you but it can also be just something as simple as taking a shower I know that for the longest time throughout my mental health journey and my self-awareness journey, I always kind of thought like I had to do like journaling and like all these like stereotypical things again, which are fine. But what I've noticed that for me personally, that works the best as well is just the little things like that, where I can get myself up when I'm starting to feel like I'm spiraling and I take a shower and I listen to some music and it, it just like they're mood boosters, yeah. just easy mood boosters. And I think another thing to note is that the more self-aware you are, the more you learn and begin to understand yourself, the better you'll be able to navigate these negative thoughts that pop in and out. And it's really hard to do. And I have to ask you, how did you become self-aware? Like, I mean, it sounds as though you've, the things that you've gone through you've really just sat and reflected and learned from those instances and those experiences. And I think a lot of people struggle with doing that. They would rather forget or shove it under the rug because it's traumatic to them in some way and they just don't want to relive it or feel those potential feelings again. And I think in order to heal, you have to do that at some point. So like, do you agree? Is that kind of how you've been able to become self-aware? Yeah, I, I definitely agree with that. I think for me, self-awareness uh, it's, it's gotten better over the years. I think when you're younger, you know, middle school and high school, you're trying to like fit in and you you care about so much about what people think, mm-hmm. you know, where you think about the outfit. You know, it's always a joke that people lay their outfit out before the first day of school. You always know, did that. Yeah, you got to always do that. did that. I coordinated outfits with my best friend for like an entire year in middle school, <laughs> like. 
It's important. You know what I yeah. mean? It's important because unfortunately, but it's also reality, people are very judgmental. Kids are yeah. very judgmental. You know, so when you were young, you, you hear people judging others, you know, because of the shoes that they wear, you know, because of the, even the, even we are uniforms, their uniforms aren't as nice as the uniforms that I, you know, like I was not that person. Like I was always someone who made friends with everybody, like at school, like I had friends. It didn't matter what they wore, it didn't matter what they look like. Like I was a friendly person. Like that's just how I am. My dad's the same exact way. He's a social butterfly. He'll talk to a stranger, a complete stranger for hours. Like it doesn't matter. So like for me, that's how I grew up. And so I was always aware of, you know, some of the differences between myself and other people, but there was also a lot of things that I was, I felt insecure about growing up, you know, and one, one thing was I have a big nose, you know, I don't care now, you know, growing up, that was a joke, you know, I like elementary, middle school, high school, you know, you have a big nose, you know, you get, you get joked on at school at lunch and stuff like that, but after you get older, you start to embrace those things. You don't care anymore. You're like, I have, I am who I am, you know? And I think self-awareness for me came at the point when I got past a lot of the insecurities that I had when I was younger. Uh, and at that point I felt like, hey, this is who I am. This is who I'm gonna be, you know? Either you're gonna like me or you're not. Either you're gonna love me or you're not. And I'm just gonna be who I am. Same with relationships, friends, family, with jobs. You know, that self-awareness is is a really powerful thing, you know, and I'm I'm not, trust me, I'm I have struggles still with things and I'm not I'm nowhere near near perfect, nowhere close. So many flaws, but I am learning, continuing to learn, and I've learned a lot about how to just, you know, be who I am and just accept it and just give my just be my full self no matter where I'm at, no matter who I'm talking to. And I think that's got me a long way so far. So I'm going to continue that. Yeah. It's something that's hard to do because I think a lot of it has to do with self-acceptance. And like you said, insecurities are the devil. And it's very hard for a lot of people to look past them or learn from them or sit with them and overcome them or at least navigate through them. So the fact that you we're able to do that. And you're like, I bet it's very freeing. Cause I've started to do that myself. I struggle with that immensely. I have, I used to have tons of insecurities and it really held me back from a lot of things in life. And I think I got to a breaking point and I was like, this is not fucking worth it. Constantly dwelling over these insecurities or what people think or people pleasing. Is everyone going to like me? And Oh God forbid that somebody doesn't like me. And having to deal with that and cope with that and navigate through that really started to lessen the burden and that part of my mental health and self-awareness and self-confidence just started to kind of build. So I love that you brought that up because I think that's something that's, I bet everybody can relate to for sure. And nobody's perfect. That's not fucking possible. (laughs) We should, (laughs) we should get rid of the term perfection. Perfect. It's just something that's unattainable and like yeah, we have to live with that. Or, nobody or no thing is perfect. Like even the thing that goes the, the best it could possibly go, it could go a little bit better. There's something that could have been like a little bit better, I'm sure. <laughs> because that's just how, you know, that's the way of the world. Like yeah. there's nobody perfect. There's nothing perfect. And that is unfortunately what a lot of us strive to be though, you know, and we want to be 
seen as this perfect person or this do do this perfect job and like live this perfect life and and that's just not reality so i think we i like your idea of getting rid of the word perfect and perfection all together yeah because i think that for myself and i can guarantee for a ton of other people having things that they feel that they need to live up to and expectations that they have to meet, whether it be a way that you look or things that you have, materialistic things or a job or a relationship. I mean, it could go on and on the list is demeaning and really harmful to someone's mental health and well-being. And in our day and age with social media too, it has so much to do with that what you see is not what you're really getting. You know, like people have to remember that just because you see something that looks perfect or to your standards of perfect doesn't mean that it is behind closed doors. You never fucking know what somebody's going through. I wish that social media would become more transparent and that the media, I think the media maybe is doing a little bit better with the different programs that are coming out and the way that people are reporting and so on and so forth. But I think social media has just become very toxic in a sense because for people that struggle with their mental health and for people that didn't before are now starting to because they're consistently comparing or trying to live up to these ideals of perfectionism that don't exist. So it's really tough. Yeah. I mean, these days are like, I think a lot tougher. And just like you talked about something that I've talked about a lot with people with social media and there's been times where I've contemplated like just going away from it all for a while or just completely. But then like as a person that's a marketer and a brand builder, like I don't want to lose my social media because there's so much there that's good as well. Like I need to share things that are positive and like, you know, I follow you and you follow me. So, you know, like to share quotes or messages or things that are positive or outlets or resources. So you know, I try to leverage my social media for that more so than just there's less of me. Like I don't even post on my actual feed as much anymore. Like very rarely it's more like stories and just quick, just things that are going on or supporting things and brands and people. And because like it can be a really good resource and a good tool. It's just all about how it's used and leveraged. Um, And there are so many people that like, that'll come on every once in a while, post like a picture of themselves, like very transparent picture. And then the rest of their pictures for the rest of their social media are like them as perfect. And even myself, like I'm guilty of like, if you looked at my, my feed, you'll be like, his life is just perfect. He's always happy. He's always smiling, you know? And so it's hard. It's not intentional that people are doing this, but I think when we post things on social media, you not you don't want to you want to post a good picture you don't want to post a bad one like you might have taken five pictures and like okay i'm gonna pick the i like this one the best let's use this one you know so mm. you're not gonna say that's the worst one let's use the worst one like, <laughs> who's doing that so i don't blame you know social media I, I think that but as far as mental health it takes a person with a certain level or strength in their mental health and security in themselves to to engage on social media and not be affected because a lot of a lot of us are affected whether we admit it or not we're affected by things we see on social media and the the lives that people live the things that they do the places they go it affects us and i'm you know i'm not afraid to say that because i mean i know 
I see some stuff and I'm like, man, I wish I was able to do that. Like, I wish I could go there. I wish I, you know, I was, you know, I wish I, I was doing this, but then you have to remember the things that you are able to do or the things that you do have and just simple as being alive in 2021, you know, we've seen so many people die, whether they're like famous celebrities that have passed away, like Kobe Bryant, mm. <laughs> like that's still unbelievable to me that Kobe Bryant died. Like, I can't believe it, you know, and his daughter, Gigi. So like, and then all the thousands and hundreds of thousands of people that died from COVID. And, you know, I've had a family member who died not from COVID, but died last year. So like, to just be here and to be alive. Well, sometimes it's as simple as that. I think there's a book or something that people told me about where it's talking about just making your bed, like just starting the habit of making your bed. Even before you make your bed, when you wake up, just think about the fact that you actually are alive. That right there is a gift because there's a lot of people that aren't here and tomorrow is not promised. So you really have to, that's, that's something that I try to remind myself of and I, I fall short, but just to, to be thankful for every day that I have. I couldn't agree more. And I think it's important that aspect that you put on things where it's showing gratitude as often as you can. And I think that can also be a savior in a sense too, of whether it be social media, that's the trigger or anything that triggers you to kind of start to spiral in a negative mindset is to kind of take a breather, take a step back, give yourself a few minutes, and then think about, like you said, a few things that you can be grateful for, whether it's people that you love or the fact that you're alive and so many people didn't have that luxury this year. It's almost an immediate way to flip the switch. I know that I've been practicing that a lot lately and it works and it's necessary. And as human beings, our brains are so powerful and it's how we use them. And we have to remember that we're always in control and we can flip the narrative whenever we want to, no matter how difficult it may be, we can do it. If it's just making your bed in the morning and starting the day off on a good foot, no matter how it ends up, you know, it's just whatever works, but yeah, gratitude is a powerful, powerful thing. So I have another question before you were diagnosed with ADHD, when you were younger, the option of getting medication and being treated was not really a thing. It was kind of just suck it up, deal with it, and get on with your life. So why is it so important to you or just in general to bring mental health awareness, especially for Black communities? I think it's important because a lot of times I've, I personally feel like there are people who are dealing with the same issues in, in not just black communities, but in black communities, especially and as well, who, you know, we talked about social media and glamorizing like this perfect life, but there's a lot of people who deal with mental health issues and problems. And we don't, we don't know, you know, and for me, I've always been someone who, has somewhat had a platform and a voice, you know, back when Twitter was a big thing, I had a lot of Twitter followers. I don't have a Twitter anymore, actually, but, you know, and then with Instagram and Facebook and, you know, I've always been very outspoken on things. So I've gained a lot of people who keep up with me and know me through social media and not even in real life. So now I always, and I felt like this for a while, it's important 
to use my voice to amplify my issues and things that I've dealt with because there are people that I know who are listening. There are people who are dealing with things or people who have reached out to me and inboxed me and, you know, asked me questions about how I dealt with this or said that they're struggling with this or saying that they, they appreciate me for being transparent or saying what I said because it helped them. So just knowing that even if it's a few people, you know, who have been affected in a positive light by something that I've said, like, I just feel like it is my, my duty. Like I'm, I'm from Louisville, Kentucky. I, I take great pride in that, you know, Muhammad Ali being from Louisville, Kentucky. And when I think about Muhammad Ali right above my, um, my area that I'm sitting in right now, there's this uh, poster that says, if your dreams don't scare you, they aren't big enough. There's a Muhammad Ali. So when I think about him and what he did and how he spoke out, you know, I feel like that's, that's the kind of legacy that I want to, you know, leave when, when my time on earth is done. Like it's not about what jobs I worked or what, how much money I had or didn't have or, who I knew, but like, did I help? You know, how many people did I help? Is there, are there people who were affected by something that I said, or were there people that were, you know, inspired? Like that ultimately to me means more than anything because I'm, I'm just a boy from Louisville, Kentucky, but there's a lot of boys from Louisville, Kentucky who may not have any hope right now. You know, they may not feel like they can do certain things. They may, have been told by teachers or peers that they're bad or they're not smart or they're not, you know, you'll never do anything, you'll never be anything. Like you're a clown, you're a joke. But I was a class clown. And where you are is not where you'll end up. You know what I mean? Like it doesn't matter what you're doing when you're, it does matter what you're doing when you're eight and 10 years old and then 12 and 16 and 20 and 21 and so on and so forth that's not who you have to be for the rest of your life. Like you can take those experiences, take the things that you learn over that time and use that for good. And the black community, I feel needs the awareness on mental health more than any community coming out of what, you know, last summer and, and just, I mean, not just last summer, cause I mean, it was 2016 and we were marching in Louisville, but the ongoing fight for equality, the fight against injustice, police brutality, that mentally is draining in itself. Living amongst people at times, especially in, my, in the corporate world where those things don't affect them, they don't, it's just another day, you know. So me bringing awareness to this is to help youth I want to bring awareness for youth and kids, but also for a lot of young black men and women who work in corporate jobs right now. And I've never met a single black person who's worked in corporate America who hasn't felt like at some point in their career, they've had to code switch or they've had to do something to make an impression or they had to change the way they talk or the way that they, they acted in order to fit in and, I'm raising the awareness on that because I, I want to kill that. Like I want to break the mold on that. And I want to encourage anybody who who's listening to be your true self, whether you change something big or you change something small, like bring a little piece of yourself to work every day, maybe something different. Maybe you write an email and you 
aren't so formal, not externally, but internally to your team. You know, like I would say like words like that's dope. Like I like that. Like just to make myself feel like I was being more myself. So I just encourage people to just be themselves, bring your true self to work. That doesn't mean you can't be professional. Just be you. So I just encourage people to do that. And that's why I'm telling my story. That's why I wanted to talk on, on the podcast. And that's uh, why I created Mindful Brand as well. So ultimately, just, just be yourself. You can't, you can't be anybody else any better than you can be yourself. I think that's well said. And I love that you're bringing awareness to almost stereotypes in the workplace, just normalizing being yourself, mental health within the workplace, racism within the workplace, and nixing all the things that surround that out because it's important. It's beyond important. And the fact that we're still struggling with so many of these issues to this day is just kind of ridiculous at this point. And I think the more that we have these conversations around racism, around mental health, around stigmas in the workplace with what constitutes professionalism and what doesn't, and does that determine whether or not you can still do your job? That's kind of something that you're also kind of tapping into. So I just want to say uh, thank you and congratulations because it's not easy to spread awareness about all of these issues, especially when you struggle with mental health yourself. It can be a burden sometimes. It can be tough. These conversations are not easy to have, especially when you find yourself having repetitive conversations. But I think, again, what you said is these conversations are going to help people. And that's the whole point. So. And they help you. Yeah. So it's always better out than in. I've bottled so much up in my head for so long. And I think that's the, the worst thing that I personally did was bottle things up. And that's why I came to the situation that I came to. So I say get it out. You'll feel a lot better. Whether it's received the way you want or not. Hey, at least, you know, you got it out. Yeah. I just am very thankful for what you're doing and how you're going about it. And I'm so excited to see where mindful goes and what you create with it. And I fully support it. And I can't wait to see what you uh, do in the future. Thank you. I appreciate you having me here and also creating this platform. I think it's, it's great that you're using your voice to spread awareness on various issues that plague the mind. So continue to do this. It's important. It's needed. And I appreciate the time. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much for joining me today. And I want to say a huge thank you to the listeners for tuning in to another episode of the Wondering Mind podcast. Until next time, maintain your brain and keep on wondering. Thank you for listening to the Wondering Mind podcast. We really hope you enjoyed this episode. If you wouldn't mind just taking a few moments and leaving us a review, letting us know what you think of the podcast. Also, feel free to follow us on Instagram at the Wondering Mind podcast and on Twitter at TWM podcast. <laughs>